This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. I dream of a time when women rest in each other's presence without judgment, comparison, competition, or fear. When we are known and celebrated, when we lay down our shields of protection from the battle, but also from each other, when we can lament without shame and laugh without guilt, when we are one storyline, fierce and lovely women of God. Join me as I talk with fierce and lovely women from around the world. episode, I talk with Karen Gonzalez. Karen is a native of Guatemala and immigrated to the United States as a child. She is a speaker, writer, immigrant advocate, and the human resources director for World Relief in Baltimore, Maryland. Karen attended Fuller Theological Seminary and studied theology and missiology, which you will hear in her heart in our conversation. And you can also read about in her first book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong, which releases in May of 2019. Karen and I talked about the refugee God and finding God in the stories that we know so well in the Bible, um, but are about immigration. And we also talk about her own immigration story. And so I thought an appropriate lost story to start us off with is one that she writes about in her book. It's familiar to us in many ways. It's the story of Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And I think the the thing is that we often look at that story, I know I have, as mainly about friendship and commitment and love between the two women, Naomi and Ruth, or we additionally look at it through the lens of Boaz, a kinship redeemer who is kind and generous and takes Ruth to be his wife and ends up fathering uh, the son, Obed, who ends up being in the lineage of Jesus. And we fail to see it as an immigrant story. We fail to see that Naomi was first an immigrant in Moab, where she meets Ruth, and then Ruth is an immigrant in Judah, where she meets Boaz. And it is through Ruth that God really teaches the Israelites about hospitality and kindness and bringing uh, the fullness of him to to their people and through their family. And I just love the way that Karen talks about it. And so she'll talk a little bit about it in this conversation. You can read about it in her book. And I, I found that that would be an appropriate lost aspect to a story that we know so well, uh, Ruth and Naomi. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Karen Gonzalez. Hey, Karen, welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Thank you, Beth. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more about you, get to know you a little bit. Um, right now, where where are you in the country right now as we talk? I'm living in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. And you are working for the World Re- Is that World Relief's headquarters there in yes. Baltimore? Yes. Okay. So I work for the headquarters um, out here in Baltimore. And I do some travel at times because we have offices around the country. Um, so, 
but primarily I'm here in like the DC Baltimore area. Tell us a little bit, tell me a little bit about World Relief and kind of the major areas of focus. And if you're a part of any one of those in particular, or if you're more broad across the entire organization. Sure. I'm just curious. Yeah. So World Relief, um, their mission um, is it's a nonprofit uh, Christian uh, development organization, humanitarian organization, and their mission is to empower the church to serve people in vulnerable situations. And so that's really the distinctive of World Relief is how much church partnership our work requires. So we do a lot of work with volunteers. So in the U.S., um, most of the work is in refugee resettlement, immigrant legal services, and working with survivors of human trafficking. All of the people we work with in the U.S. are foreign-born people. Um, Immigrants are just particularly vulnerable uh, to all kinds of crime, exploitation, abuse. And so that's been the focus of World Relief's work in the U.S. We also have some international offices where the work is a little bit different. It's um, international development work, so it's economic empowerment and maternal child health, um, you know, gender and development, that kind of work. So, And mm-hmm. are you focused, is World Relief focused in specific countries internationally, or is it, again, more broad? It's mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. We do have one office in Haiti and one in Cambodia, but most of the offices, I'd say 13 out of the 15, are in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. So, yeah, and particularly, I would say, in um, East Africa region, mm-hmm. uh, Central and East. And I started working with World Relief in church mobilization is what they call it. So basically, I worked for an office here in Baltimore um, in immigrant legal services. And what I did is I went to churches and I would speak to them, sometimes in a Bible study, sometimes they invite me to preach, and sometimes they just invite me to like a Sunday school class or an adult ed class or something like that. And I would talk to them about God's heart for immigrants and how they can get involved and come alongside to care for immigrants and serve them in in mutuality, of course, you know, build relationships. And um, that's how I started with World Relief. And I, as part of that work, I had to do an immigration law class. (laughs) And it's a real class with a real exam um, because (laughs) some of what I did in the office, I also assisted with intakes. We had clinic days on Tuesdays and Wednesdays where immigrants would just walk in and sign up, you know, to meet with um, an attorney or an accredited representative. There's such a high need for immigrant legal services that the government, the Department of Justice, actually allows people who are not lawyers to practice immigration law uh, as long as they're accredited and recognized and they're working for a nonprofit. And it has to be very low fees because it's as a service to the community. It's not supposed to be like a money-making venture. And so we have in our Baltimore Legal Clinic to accredited representatives. And I was kind of on my way also to, to becoming accredited. And I mean, so anyway, that's how I started with World Relief. And, and then I eventually transitioned, you know, because of funding and other stuff. So currently I'm the um, director of human resources and I've been at the organization about three and a half years at this point. So. Okay. I just didn't know all of that, right? I mean, World Relief is a name that we know, of course, it's, it's, definitely recognizable, but I didn't know all the various programs. Thanks for sharing that with me. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk about the work that they're doing. So you've been involved in immigration work for 
years, you yourself have an immigrant story. Mm -hmm. And now you have a book coming out, The God Who Sees Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. So I would love to talk a little bit about all of that. And let's start with, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your story, your immigrant story, to kind of start us off. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so my family and I, you know, tell some of the story in the book and of course in more detail, <laughs> but so my family um, moved to the U.S. in the early 1980s. And I would say I have a kind of family that you would think would never immigrate. Uh, they had no dreams of that, no desire to do that. Um, you know, both my parents were professionals and they loved the work that they did. And we had a community of friends and family. in in Guatemala City, where I was born and where I um, was growing up. Really what drove us out, um, I hear this said every once in a while, and I'm not sure who coined it, is they, uh, you you could say that my family wasn't dreaming, wasn't looking for the American dream. They were fleeing the Central American nightmare. And that's really what drove my family out is um, there was a civil war um, in Guatemala between the leftist socialist guerrillas um, who had some good goals like land reform, returning land to the indigenous peoples. Um, They had some really worthy goals, you know, weeding out the corruption from the government, caring about the poor and the marginalized in our country. Um, And they started this war against the, what I guess you could say the old guard the oligarchy in Guatemala because Guatemala is an oligarchy run by these wealthy families um, and the military dictatorship that was in power at the time. So the civil war resulted in uh, the deaths of a lot of people and it really crippled the Guatemalan economy. I think most sad to me was that the war was funded by the United States because you know, in the 1980s, there was still a fear of communism. They didn't want communism spreading in the Americas uh, as it did in Cuba. And so um, so the war was funded by the U.S. And that's what ultimately drove my family out. The economy was crippled. And my dad was a socialist since his university days. And so, um, so my family had to leave. And so we did. We came to the U.S. Um, in 1981. And I was a really little girl. And... My family was settled, some of my dad's relatives lived in Rhode Island, some of my mom's lived in California, and ultimately we ended up settling in California. We had um, a visa, so we flew in on a visa and we overstayed it, and uh, we, my parents and also my brother and sister and I were undocumented for the first two and a half years we lived in the country. And that's one of the reasons we, we lived in LA. It's just in a, a bigger place, easier to go unnoticed. And so we lived there until we got our green cards. And once we got them, we moved pretty quickly and we ended up settling in Florida. Um, and that's where I lived, you know, from the time I was in middle school. Um, and I went to college there. I lived there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my family's story. And I always like to tell people immigrants are not are not sitting in their home countries dreaming of leaving. There are always factors that push immigrants out. Uh, most people would prefer, you know, to it's like your culture and your country is like your castle. It's a place that you know and you know what to do and how to do it. Um, and it's the ideal place for you to build your life, but 
my parents found that impossible. And so do many immigrants around the country. They find that they can't stay because of either lack of economic opportunities um, or there's war or there's conflict. Um, you know, Syria, for example, is a great example of that, a, a place that has completely been destabilized by war. And, and, you know, very few people have chosen to stay because it's it's pretty much choosing either, you know, your life or fleeing. And so um, ultimately, that's my family's story as well. So Karen, how do you weave that story into the, the larger narrative of the immigrant story? And especially, I, I just love in your book how you have named the immigrant story in the Bible. And at one point, you even call God the refugee God. And so let's Tell us a little bit about how you do that, how you weave your story into your book, and and talk a little bit about what you've discovered in scripture mm-hmm. around the immigrant story. Yes, I love to talk about that. One of the things that's happened for me, really since I started working at World Relief, um, my eyes have been opened to see the Bible in a way that I had not seen it in a really long time, perhaps ever, but I know in seminary, I did have some conversations around this, but I had always read the Bible from the perspective of the dominant culture, Um, the people in power, right? The people who had taught me the Bible traditionally. And even though, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family, I was always part of, you know, dominant culture churches, you know, churches um, that were predominantly white and some were multi-ethnic as well. And I never realized that I was missing an important narrative, an important perspective on the scriptures. And so working at World Relief and working with immigrants and reconnecting to my own immigrant identity and story, because so much of the immigrant story is pressure to assimilate, you know? And And it sounds like you did that well. Yes. (laughs) So I did that. (laughs) I did that really well. And to a point where you almost start to lose part of yourself, you know, you start to lose part of that story. Um, But I started to reconnect with that. And I started, when I would read the Bible, I would start seeing things I'd never seen before. And for example, I'd always heard the story of Ruth as a kind of, I don't know, fairy tale story about Boaz. That's really about Boaz, who was a, a kind of Jesus figure. And he rescued these two women. And now they're part of you know, the genealogy of Jesus. And so reading that story again, I began to see like, wait, Naomi and her husband are immigrants to Moab. And then Naomi returns home and she brings home her Moabite daughter-in-law, who now is an immigrant, you know, to Judah. And it's really the story of this immigrant woman uh, making her way in this community of Judah. And it's a story of the people of Judah, and especially um, Boaz is like not a symbol of the people of Judah, but they love her, they welcome her, they care for her, they bless her, and she in turn blesses them. And you see this beautiful like mutuality of blessing where no one fears the other, no one tries to overpower the other, no one champions their own people or their own gender. And there's all this flourishing and thriving for the entire community, not just for Ruth and Naomi, but also for Boaz. He's blessed by this uh, relationship too. And I started seeing it more and more how there's a narrative in the Bible. There's an overarching narrative of people beginning as strangers, um, but ending their story as 
part of the family of God, as belonging in the family of God. And I saw it in the story of Joseph in Egypt, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, in Hagar. Even David fled to these other, you know, countries uh, for a time. Paul, um, and I don't write about all of these people, but I started to see all of this, you know, with with new eyes. Esther living in this, you know, uh, different place, right? That is not a majority of her people around her, and so um, to really help me to see the scriptures in this way, and to. And then I began to see how I was part of that story. And for example, in the story of Joseph, I I saw how vulnerable Joseph was in Egypt. You know, he was brought there as essentially a victim of human trafficking. He sold into slavery. And then he is so vulnerable as a foreigner in Egypt that he ends up being unjustly accused of a crime. He gets thrown in prison. He's forgotten there. I mean, Joseph has no one but God on his side, you know, for so many years that he's in Egypt and he's suffering and things keep getting worse for him instead of better. And I thought about my own family and I thought about how when we arrived in the U.S., we were really vulnerable foreigners too. And every adult in my family was the victim of assault and robbery. Um, They experienced things like wage theft and worksite abuse. Um, And I began, of course, hearing other stories from other immigrants. Um, You know, there's a fear that people have around immigrants being criminals. But actually, research shows that immigrants are more likely to be victims of crime because they're so vulnerable and they don't know all the rules and all the all the ways that the culture um, works. And many of them, because of being documented or because in their own country, the police is so corrupt, they also fear the police. And so they don't, they don't, they don't go, they don't call them. So I began to see all these ways, you know, that my family struggles were reflected. And it's a really beautiful thing to start to see yourself in the scriptures and to know that God cares deeply about people on the margins. And, you know, there's the stories in the Bible are people on the margins. It's written to people on the margins by people on the margins. Nobody who wrote the Bible or whose story is told was in this position of great world power, you know? So, Mm -hmm. so that's really where I began to see it. And, you know, I looked at the story of Hagar and saw that she was this insignificant foreign um, young woman and that really she was so shocked that God saw her because she was so insignificant in her time and in in this foreign land that she was living in with Abraham and Sarah. And she can't believe it. She can't believe that God sees her and that God um, values her life and that God chose this future and destiny for her and her son. You know, to her, it's just astounding. And to me, it reminded me of my grandmother who was undocumented for all but maybe the last five years she was in the U.S. and she worked as a housekeeper in a wealthy American household and she was unseen. You know, she was one of these people trying not to be seen, trying not to be noticed, but also not noticed and not not valued. And I thought of her and I thought of Hagar and I thought of my grandmother sitting in this L.A. mansion, you know, reading her Bible in her little servant's quarter room because she was a live-in housekeeper and and how God saw her and God 
cared for her and God saw her as this great spiritual mother, you know, of her family, even though in the world at large, she wasn't valued or seen. Yeah, it was really a powerful process for me writing this book. It was very, um, it was a lot of hard emotional work, but it was also extremely life-giving and so encouraging because I saw so much of God's care for me and my family, but also for just immigrants at large. You know, we're facing right now in the world the greatest refugee crisis that we know of, even worse than after World War II. There's more refugees in the world than ever. Um, And we're facing also a time when a lot of countries that have opportunities and that have capacity for receiving and providing refuge don't want to do that. There's a a big anti-immigrant xenophobic wave, not just in the U.S., but around, around the world. And to me, in the midst of all of this, knowing that God sees and God loves and values and cares and is deeply involved in the lives of vulnerable immigrants. It's just very heartening, very hopeful and encouraging, you know, in this time. Well, I love it that towards the end, actually, it might be the very last page of your book where you kind of flip all of those narratives on the head and say, God, God was Ruth who came to the people of Judah. And God was Hagar, who came back to the, to Abraham and Sarah. And can you talk a little bit about that, about seeing actually God's movement towards the majority population through each of these individuals, these immigrants? Yes. Um, you know, I it was interesting because I read this book in the process of doing my research for this book. And this book is so wonderful. I'm supposed to be promoting my book, but this book is also wonderful. (laughs) And it was a book called Stranger God by a professor at uh, Texas, I think Abilene Christian University. And he wrote this book called Stranger God. And he said something really powerful. He said, you know, when we uh, obey Matthew 25, you know, Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, you know, I was in prison and you visited me. Um, Jesus doesn't say it was like I was in prison (laughs) or, you know, what he's saying is when you do this, you're not exemplifying great Christian character. He says, no, you're doing this for me when you do it. It's as if it was me. And so I was really struck by that. Like we actually, when we welcome immigrants, we are welcoming Jesus. You know, there's that verse that says that people unaware um, have well have uh, entertained um, angels, right, in their midst, right, uh, mm-hmm. as they've been unaware. I think of that verse when I think about Matthew 25, because Jesus says, "When you visit people in prison, you're visiting me. When you welcome immigrants, you're welcoming me." And so I thought about that, and I thought about the way that we're treating. You know, there's this great humanitarian crisis at the border right now at the U.S.-Mexico border, and the way that we are treating immigrants, we're actually treating Jesus. We're actually rejecting Jesus, sending Jesus back, uh, deporting Jesus, putting Jesus in detention centers. Um, there was a really powerful image around Christmas time last year where somebody in a, in a church, on a church lawn, put a fence, like a barbed wire fence, around a nativity scene because they wanted to really 
drive home that point that this is what we're doing to, to Christ himself, you know, in this season. And that's what I was struck by that. That's what this means. And that's why it's not a small thing. It's not a side issue of the gospel that, oh, maybe we should discuss, maybe we shouldn't, um, the way that people like to discuss predestination and free will or something like that. Like this is central to the message of the gospel is how we would receive Jesus into our midst. And so I wanted to drive home that point at the end that Judah didn't welcome Ruth. They welcomed Jesus. They welcomed God, right? This was pre-Jesus. That Joseph, sitting in prison, vulnerable, exploited, falsely accused, was Jesus sitting in that prison. That Hagar, this foreign enslaved girl who was driven into the desert, evicted from the household, thrown out like she was garbage, that's Jesus, you know, that that was done to. It was God that was done to. And so I really wanted to drive home that point for people to really sit with that, that this is, in fact, what we're doing when we mistreat people. But when we love them and we welcome them in mutuality as, you know, brothers and sisters, we're also doing that for Christ. And that's powerful too. And that's the other side of that, right? That when we do what the scriptures command us to do, which is welcome and trust God. And I recognize that trust is hard. You know, I, I like and welcome an immigrants often to, you know, many people, you know, give to their church. Many people give tithes, right? And many people are blessed <laughs> beyond that and are able to give more. Um, and so, but we do that out of trust in God that we're going to give to God back what is God's because everything we have, God has given to us. And now we're giving it back. Uh, We're giving back a portion um, to God. And we trust that we're going to have enough for our families, that we're going to have enough to pay our bills and our housing and everything else that we need to live. And I think it's the same with welcoming immigrants, except our home, right, is our nation. Like we have to trust in the bountiful economy of God, that there will be enough for our families, that there will be jobs for our children, that there there will be enough for us all, because that's what God's economy is like. But it requires us to trust God, uh, this like, uh, they call it philozenia, right? A love of, of immigrants, a love of foreigners. So I really was deeply changed by the process of writing this in a way I wasn't expecting, you know, because I really thought, oh, I'm, I'm writing this book. I feel really called to write this book, but it's mostly because I want other people to be <laughs> convinced, you know, and to, and to entertain these ideas and these thoughts. And perhaps their the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts to change their, their attitude, right? Their posture toward immigrants. But really God did this deep work in me through the process of writing it, this, um, this sense of identity of reclaiming identity and, um, belonging and all those things that are human needs, right? They're needs for all human beings. Well, I think the very best books are the ones that are transformative first for the author and and then for others. And I think that that you read that, you can see and hear and feel that in author's words. And I certainly can with yours, Karen. Um, you know, this podcast, I'm I chose to call Fierce and Lovely because of this combination that 
I believe as, as women in particular, we most reflect God in addressing injustice through our you know, fierceness and doing so in a way that still brings forth life and beauty through our loveliness. And that combination um, is really compelling to me and powerful. And so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts for us, for, for all of my listeners and myself included, around how to bring our fierce and lovely to the immigrant um, in our community to like some action steps, some some postures of our heart that we could be reflective mm-hmm. around. Um, just share with us some some tangible ideas of how to do that well. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to do that. I love, by the way, these two words together, fierce and lovely. <laughs> I just love the <laughs> juxtaposition of those terms. Um, and I do think, you know, there's, we can embody both and we should. And uh, what I encourage people to do, and I have this call to action at the end of the book where I uh, tell people ways that they can get involved. But I really think the first thing, you know, it's interesting. I do these like Facebook live things and I've done different events uh, where I go speak about immigration and, and there's always a and a It's interesting. One of the things people always want to know is how can I convince, you know, my uncle so-and-so? How can I convince my parents or, you know, or my friend? And, and I always tell them, you know, the work of transformation is a work of the spirit. And it's not a work that we're able to do. We can't get inside people's heads and their hearts, you know, and mold them into something that we want. And so the very first thing I ask people to do is to really reflect and consider where did they get their own information on immigration? Where did it come from? I had to really sit down and think about that myself. And I had to really reckon with the reality that I did not get my views of immigration from the Bible initially that I got them from my family, I got them from the media, I got them from my peer group, and the views that I held were not informed by Jesus' teachings, and they were not informed by God's commands in the Old Testament. And frankly, there was a lot that God had to say about the treatment of the vulnerable person, and specifically the immigrant. And I had to be honest with myself in God's presence to name that and to acknowledge that, and then to dig into the scriptures and to really find out what is it that God actually says. And so that's the first thing I always encourage people to do, like be honest with yourself in God's presence about where your information comes from on immigration, and then be ready to dig into the scriptures and to be attentive to the voice of the spirit and what the spirit is going to speak to you about this. So that's the very first thing. But I think the right. second thing, it starts with us. Yeah, it starts with us. And I don't think it's wrong. You know, a lot of people want to volunteer with refugee resettlement and we couldn't do refugee resettlement without volunteers. And so I'm not discouraging people from doing that at all. But I think it's really important to figure out these these things first, um, figure out where it is we think about this issue, uh, because it will affect the way we view immigrants and the way that we engage with them. Second, I always ask people to consider if they have relationships with immigrants Um, and not transactional ones, uh, not ones of the woman who cleans my house or the man who cuts my lawn or, you know, my favorite waitress at a Mexican restaurant, but relationships that are equal, where there's mutuality. And I always tell people this is not hard. There are immigrants all around you 
What is hard is taking the initiative. Uh, because always when you're working across cultures, there's always awkwardness, misunderstanding, <laughs> miscommunication. But I encourage people, look around your church, look around your workplace, uh, your PTA, your kid, your uh, your children's, you know, friends uh, and their parents. Uh, immigrants are everywhere. And can you initiate a relationship and make sure that it's mutual, you know, have them over to your house, accept an invitation to their house, work on a church event together and, and get to know them. Something where there's going to be mutuality. And it does take a lot of intention to make sure that our relationships with immigrants are, are born out of mutuality. But I think the gospel requires nothing less than that mutuality because God wants to transform us too. It's not just an act of mercy for other people building relationships, but it's for us as well. And so there, so it's important that that mutuality be there. And I think as part of the the fierce, <laughs> um, is I always tell people that it's important to advocate. And I don't mean advocate like move to Washington, D.C. and go to the Hill and meet with politicians. <laughs> what I mean is um, I don't allow people in my presence to say disparaging things about immigrants. Now, we can disagree about immigration as a political and economic issue, for sure. And I think that's perfectly fine to discuss the topic itself. But I don't allow people to disparage immigrants. Um, they're not allowed to call immigrants anything but humanizing language in front of me, for example, undocumented or unauthorized immigrant, uh, not alien, not illegal, um, because language matters. It shapes our reality, and we ha it's important that we use language that humanizes people. Um, mm -hmm. And I remind people, immigrants are image bearers of God, and that needs to be forefront in our mind, even if we have disagreements on what we think about the issue itself. And so, That's so good. yeah, and I think the advocating part is just doesn't have to be confrontational. And I think it shouldn't be, actually. You know, when I think about the work of transformation that's happened in my life, it's always happened gradually. And it's happened because there have been people who loved me, despite my lack of information or despite views that I held that maybe aren't great or aren't biblical. And I've never been berated or scolded or name called into any kind of change. It's always been a product of love and a product of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I encourage people, you know, don't, you don't have to get into fights with people, but you can push back. You can say, you know, that's interesting. Um, where did you learn this information? There's a lot of misinformation about immigration. Um, you know, I was just at a coffee shop where people were telling me about <laughs> what's going on at the border. Well, I have been to the border and I've seen it myself, you know, and I said, actually, that's not, uh, I don't know. I said, I'm not sure where you got your information. I said, we could talk about it, but that's not really what's happening there. I was just there. And, and it was good to be able to say that. And, you know, one of them said to me, oh, you know, I, you know, I respect the work that you do, Karen, but I'm just not in favor of open borders. And I'm like, well, good. Neither am I. Neither is any immigration advocate that I know of. <laughs> I said, all of us advocate for a secure border, but we don't want a militarized border. We want a border that is open to our labor needs, first of all, but also to the needs of our neighbors, humanitarian needs that our neighbors might have. And so I said, that's really what, what we want. But we do want a secure border. 
Uh, we're not saying do away with the border patrol. We're not saying, you know, just open wide the gates. Um, and so it was good for us to have that conversation for them to understand that immigrant advocates are not are not saying that. And so right. there's misinformation. There's a lot of memes that I see flying around. Some of them are pro-immigration, but they're wrong. So it's okay to ask questions um, in a way that's not condescending, but actually curious to engage a conversation. It's okay to provide correction gently, and it's okay to look for common ground. You know, I have a relative who is very anti-immigrant. And, you know, one of the things that I got him to agree on is I said, but can we agree that the men and women and children coming to the border, these parents that are coming to the border, they are human beings just like you and me. And they love their children and want a better future for them, just like you do, just like I do. And he said, okay, we can agree on that. I said, okay, great. <laughs> but we can find common ground in some areas. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we should seek that out. Um, and so this is where I tell people to really be the fiercest, to not disconnect and feel like, well, there's no hope for so-and-so. There's no hope. There's no, you know, change possible there because it's God's work. And God, if God could change Paul <laughs> from someone who used to murder Christians and persecute them, then God can do a work of changing someone's view on an important topic like this. But we do have to trust right. God to do that work and be sort of midwives of, of love and hope for people. Mm -hmm. So, And I'm sure in the process, be open to our own change, mm -hmm. right? Because what I'm hearing you describe is a middle ground that, that we could have the approach that checks out and just becomes you know, throws up our hands and gives up, or we could have the approach of being on the attack and feeling like we need to defend and argue and justify. Mm -hmm. But I'm hearing you describe a middle ground that is curious and uh, exploratory and looking for that mutuality, that commonality. But in that, we can't do that well without also being open to our own transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's, I see the gospel in that. I mean, that's just a really beautiful approach to any, any issue, any, you know, major difference that, that we might have with someone, but particularly this one, uh, it sounds like a really fierce and lovely approach. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. It's a really well described. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that you conclude your book with those action items and you've got discussion questions in there. So this is really probably a, a incredible tool, a primer for small groups and churches to do together, for book clubs to do together who really want to dive more into um, immigration. And it's just an enjoyable read because it's story. It's your story. It's biblical stories. And yet it's it leaves you with some real concrete things that you could you could do individually or as a group. So Karen, thank you so much for writing it, for, for allowing yourself to be transformed in the process so that you can share more of your expertise and wisdom with us. And thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Beth. It was so great to talk with you and to be here. And I just love this opportunity. So your book, it releases on May 21st and people can order it wherever books are sold, I presume. And I will share all of those links in the show notes. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Thanks. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I just sat beneath a theologian and I could listen to Karen speak and teach 
all day long. A listener once told me that she thought my voice was like butter, but I actually think that that's more true of Karen or perhaps both of us just to sound like butter. Um, But you can pick up a copy of Karen's book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong, which releases on May 21st. And can I just encourage you to grab it or to grab another book of a woman of color and let's support um, our sisterhood and voices that span all different backgrounds and cultures and uh, race and ethnicity and just support one another. So pick that up and you too can learn more about women of the Bible and the refugee God and Karen's story herself. Thanks for listening. This is Beth Bruno and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.